The balance between divine preservation and human perseverance was well presented by John Owen when he wrote, It is true, our persistency in Christ doth not, as to the issue and event, depend absolutely on our own diligence. The unalterableness of our union with Christ on the account of the faithfulness of the covenant of grace is that which doth and shall eventually secure it. But yet, our own diligent endeavor is such an indispensable means for that end, as without it, it will not be brought about. Diligence and endeavor in this matter are like Paul's mariners when he was shipwrecked at Melita. God had before given him the lives of all that sailed with him in the ship. Acts 27.24 And he believed that it should be even as God had told him. So now the preservation of their lives depended absolutely on the faithfulness and power of God. But yet, when the mariners began to fly out of the ship, Paul tells the centurion that unless the men stayed, they could not be saved. Verse 31. But what need he think of shipmen when God had promised and taken upon himself the preservation of them all? He knew full well that he would preserve them, but yet that he would do so by the use of means. If we are in Christ, God hath given us the lives of our souls and hath taken upon himself in his covenant the preservation of them. But yet we may say with reference unto the means that he hath appointed when storms and trials arise, unless we use our diligent endeavors, we cannot be saved. Hence are the many cautions which are given not only in this epistle wherein they abound, but in other places of Scripture also, that we should take heed of apostasy and falling away, as, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Revelation 3.11 Consider what it is to abide in Christ, what watchfulness, what diligence, what endeavor are required thereunto. Men would have it to be a plant that needs neither watering, manuring, nor pruning, but one which will thrive alone of itself. Is it any wonder if we see so many either decaying or unthrifty professors, and so many that are utterly turned off from their first engagements. Unquote. From the last two sentences, we may perceive that the same evil against which we are here contending, a carnal security, which Scripture nowhere warrants, had an existence in the palmy days of the Puritans. Verily, there is no new thing under the sun, Nearly three hundred years ago, that faithful teacher and prince of expositors had to protest against the one-sided perversion of the precious truth of the divine preservation of the saints. But no wonder. 
The devil plainly revealed his methods when he pressed upon Christ the divine promise that God had given his angels charge to bear thee up. But the Savior refused to recklessly ignore the requirements of self-preservation. From John Calvin's comments upon John 8.31, we extract the following. If, therefore, we wish that Christ should reckon us to be his disciples, we must endeavor to persevere. Unquote. Scripture, not logic, is our rule of faith, and not one or two statements taken out of their contexts, but the whole analogy of faith. Error is truth perverted, truth distorted, truth out of proportion. To short-sighted human reason, there appears to be a clash between divine justice and divine mercy, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, between law and grace, between faith and good works. But he who is really taught of the Spirit is enabled to discern their perfect consistency. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, Second Corinthians 6.10 is a puzzling paradox to the carnal mind. To read that the Son makes His people free, and yet that He requires them to take His yoke upon them, is an enigma unto many. To rejoice with trembling, Psalm 2.11, seems a contradiction in terms to some carping minds. No less contradictory appears God's promise to keep his people and his requiring to keep themselves under pain of eternal damnation. Yet the last mentioned are just as consistent as are the other themes referred to throughout this paragraph. For he is faithful that promised... At first glance, it is not very easy perhaps to perceive the precise relation of these words to the preceding exhortation, that they are added by way of encouragement seems fairly obvious. For the more that we spiritually ponder the veracity of the promiser, the more will our faith be strengthened, the more we realize that we have to do with one who cannot lie, the greater confidence shall we have in his word. Instead of being unduly occupied with the difficulties of the way, we need to look off unto him who has so graciously given us his exceeding great and precious promises, Second Peter 1.4, to cheer and gladden us. Yet this hardly explains the immediate connection between the two parts of this verse, nor does it answer the question as to whether or no any particular promise is here in view. For he is faithful that promised. Perhaps the bearing which these words have upon the preceding injunction has been brought out as well by Albert Barnes as any. To induce them to hold fast their profession, the Apostle adds this additional consideration. God, who had promised eternal life to them, was faithful to all that he had said. The argument here is, one, that since God is so faithful to us, 
we ought to be faithful to him. Two, the fact that he is faithful is an encouragement to us. We are dependent on him for grace to hold fast our profession. If he were to prove unfaithful, we should have no strength to do it. But this he never does, and we may be assured that all that he has promised he will perform. To the service of such a God, therefore, we should adhere without wavering. Unquote. If we compare chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 15, Light is cast upon what specific promises here contemplated. In the former, we read, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. In the latter we are told, And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, persevered, he obtained the promise. It is to be most particularly noted that all through this epistle salvation is viewed as a future thing. This is an aspect of salvation, a vitally important one too, which is mostly omitted from present-day preaching and teaching. In the Hebrews, as likewise in the epistles of Peter, the saints are contemplated as being yet in the wilderness, which is the place of testing and of danger. It is only those who diligently heed the solemn warning of chapter 3, verse 12, who win through. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Verse 24 The opening and serves two purposes. It is a plain indication that the contents of this verse are closely related to what has just been before us. It is a pointed intimation that we ought to be as considerate and careful about the spiritual edification of other saints as we are of our own. Thus there are two things here which claim our consideration, the precise nature of the duty enjoined and the connection between it and the exhortation of verse 23. And let us consider one another, there are no fewer than eleven Greek words used in the New Testament which are all rendered by our one English term, consider. Four of them being simple verbs and seven of them compounds for the purpose of particular emphases. The first signifies the serious observing of a matter, Acts 15.6. The second, a careful deliberation. Hebrews 7.4 The third, to narrowly spy or investigate as a watchman. Galatians 6.1 The fourth, to turn a matter over in the mind. 2 Timothy 2.7 The first simple verb is 
compounded in Acts 12.12 and means to seriously consult with oneself about a matter. The second simple verb is compounded in Hebrews 13.7 and means to diligently review a thing. The fourth simple verb is compounded in Acts 11.6 and means to thoroughly weigh a matter so as to come to a full knowledge of it. This is the one used in our present text. In Mark 6.52 is a different compound. The disciples failed to compare things together. In Hebrews 12.3, another compound signifies to reckon up all that Christ suffered. In John 11.50 is a similar compound, to reckon thoroughly. In Matthew 6.28, consider the lilies means to learn thoroughly so as to be instructed thereby. The practical lesson to be learned from all this is that the things of God call for our utmost attention. And let us consider one another. Let us diligently bear in mind and continually have in view the good of our fellow pilgrims. The term consider is very emphatic, being the same as in chapter 3, verse 1, where we are bidden to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Here it signifies a conscientious care and circumspection over the spiritual estate and welfare of other Christians. They are brethren and sisters in Christ, members of the same family. A tie far nearer and dearer than any earthly one unite you to them and them to you. Consider not only their blessed relation to you, but also their circumstances, their trials, their temptations, their infirmities, their needs. Seek grace to be of service, of help, of blessing to them. Remember that they have their conflicts too, their discouragements, their falls. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Hebrews 12, 12. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Here is expressed the chief design or end of our consideration for one another. It is to provoke or stir up unto the performance of duties, to strengthen zeal, to inflame affections, to excite unto godly living. We are to provoke one another by means of a godly example, by suitable exhortations, by unselfish acts of kindness. We are to fire one another unto love, which is not a mere sentiment or natural affability, but a holy principle of action which seeks the highest good of its object. Christian love is righteous and never winks at sin. It is faithful, which shrinks not from warning or rebuking where such is necessary. And good works is to be the issue, the fruit of godly love. And this is love, 
that we walk after his commandments. 2 John 6 The relation between this exhortation in verse 24 and the one in verse 23 is very intimate. Love and good works are both the effects and evidences of the sincere confession of saving faith, and therefore a diligent attendance unto them is an essential means of constancy in our confession. Christian perseverance is nothing less than a continuance in practical godliness, in the path of obedience to Christ and love unto his brethren. Therefore we are called upon to watch over one another with a view to steadfastness in the faith and fruitfulness in our lives. No Christian liveth unto himself. Romans 14.7 Each one of us is either a help or a hindrance, a blessing or a curse unto those we associate with. Which is it? The Lord stir up both writer and hearer, to a more unselfish and loving concern for the spiritual good of those who are fellow members of the same body. Arthur Pink Continued in the April Studies Study number three The Life of David His Entering Saul's Service In our last article, we contemplated David's anointing. In our present study, an entirely different experience in his varied career is before us. The two halves of 1 Samuel 16 presents a series of striking contrasts. In the former, we behold David called to occupy the throne. In the latter, He is seen entering the place of service. There we see the Spirit of the Lord coming upon David, verse 13. Here we behold the Spirit of the Lord departing from Saul, verse 14. In the one, David is anointed with the holy oil, verse 13. In the other, Saul is troubled with an evil spirit, verse 14. Samuel was mourning, verse 1. Saul is refreshed, verse 23. Samuel approached Jesse with an heifer for sacrifice, verse 2. Jesse sends David to Saul with bread, wine, and a kid for feasting, verse 20. David was acceptable in God's sight, verse 12. Here he found favor in Saul's eyes. Verse 22, before he was tending the sheep, verse 11, now he is playing the harp in the palace, verse 23. God did not set David upon the throne immediately. After his anointing came a season of testing. The coming of the Spirit upon him was followed by his having to face the great enemy, Thus it was with David's son and Lord, the one whom in so many respects he foreshadowed. After the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him at his baptism, Christ was tempted of the devil for forty days, 
so here. The next thing we read of is David's being sent to calm Saul, who was terrified by an evil spirit, and shortly after that he goes forth to meet Goliath, figure of Satan. The principle which is here illustrated is one that we do well to take to heart. Patience has to be tested, humility manifested, faith strengthened before we are ready to enter into God's best for us. We must use rightly what God has given us if we desire Him to give us more. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him, 1 Samuel 16:14. Exceedingly solemn is this, the more so when we consider that which precedes it. In chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, the Lord had, through Samuel, given a definite commission unto Saul to utterly destroy Amalek and all that they had. Instead of so doing, he compromised. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Chapter 15, verse 9. When faced by God's faithful prophet, the king's excuse was, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord. Verse 15. Then it was that Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and in sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. Verse 22. Saul had openly defied the Lord by deliberately disobeying his plain commandment. Wherefore the prophet said unto him, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Verse 23. And now we come to the dreadful sequel. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Having forsaken God, God forsook him. Rightly did Matthew Henry say upon this verse, They that drive the good spirit away from them do, of course, become a prey to the evil spirit. If God and His grace do not rule us, sin and Satan will have possession of us. Unquote. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Great care needs to be taken against our reading into these words what is really not in them, otherwise we shall make one part of Scripture contradict another. The Holy Spirit had never been given to Saul as the Spirit of regeneration and sanctification but he had been given to him as a spirit of prophecy, 
see chapter 10, verse 10, and contrast chapter 28, verse 6, and as a spirit of wisdom for temporal rule, thus fitting him for the discharge of his royal duties. In like manner, when we read that God gave him another heart, chapter 10, verse 9, this must not be confounded with a new heart, Ezekiel 36.26. The another heart was not in a moral and spiritual sense, but only in a way of wisdom for civil government, prudence to rule, courage to fight against his enemies, fortitude against difficulties and discouragements. It is a serious mistake to suppose that because the Holy Spirit has not come as the Spirit of regeneration and sanctification unto many professors, that therefore He has not come to them at all, many are made partakers of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of enlightenment, Hebrews 6.4, of spiritual aspirations, Numbers 24.2 and 28.10, and so forth, of deliverance from the pollutions of the world, 2 Peter 2.20, who are never brought from death unto life. There are common operations of the Spirit as well as special, and it behooves all of us to very seriously and very diligently examine our hearts and lives for the purpose of discovering whether or no the Holy Spirit indwells us as a sanctifier, subduing the flesh, delivering from worldliness and conforming to the image of Christ. Matthew Henry said, When men grieve and quench the Spirit by willful sin, he departs and will not strive. Unquote. The servants of Saul were uneasy over the king's condition, realizing that an evil spirit from God was tormenting him. They therefore suggested that a man who had skill in playing the harp should be sought out, saying, And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. Verse 16. Such is the best counsel which poor worldlings have to offer unto those in trouble. As Matthew Henry said, How much better friends had they been to him if they had advised him, since the evil spirit was from the Lord, to make his peace with God by true repentance, to send for Samuel to pray with him and intercede with God for him. Then might he not only have had some present relief, but the good spirit would have returned. How many whose consciences have convicted them of their careless, sinful, godless ways, and who have been startled by the presence of an eternity in hell, have been ruined forever by following a course of drowning the concerns of the soul by regaling and delighting the senses of the body. Eat, drink, and be merry is the motto of the world, 
and every effort is made to stifle all anxiety about the near prospect of a time arriving when instead of being able to go on so doing, not even a drop of water will be available to ease their unbearable sufferings. Let the younger hearers seriously ponder this. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will surely bring thee unto judgment. Ecclesiastes 11.9 The suggestion made by his servants appealed to Saul, and he gave his consent. Accordingly, one of them told him, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Verse 18. A high character is here accorded David, as one well fitted for the strange part he was to play. Not only was his person suited for the court, not only was he skilled upon the harp, but he was known for his courage and wisdom. The terming of him a mighty valiant man intimates that his single-handed victory over the lion and the bear, chapter 17, verse 37, had already been noised abroad. Finally, it was known that the Lord is with him. How this illustrates and demonstrates the fact that one who has received the Spirit as the Spirit of regeneration and sanctification gives clear evidence of it to others. Where a miracle of grace has been wrought in the heart, the fruits of it will soon be unmistakably manifested to all around. Very searching is this. Can those with whom we come into daily contact see that the Lord is with the writer and the hearer? Oh, to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son which is with the sheep. Verse 19 Little did Saul think that in giving this order he was inviting to his palace the very one of whom Samuel had said, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine better than thou. Chapter 15, verse 28 How marvelously does God, working behind the scenes, bring his own purpose to pass. Verily, Man's goings are of the Lord, and well may we say, How can a man then understand his own way? Proverbs twenty twenty four. Yet while we are quite incapable of analyzing either the philosophy or psychology of it, let us admire and stand in awe before him of whom it is written, 
for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty six. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. Verse 19. What a testing for David was this. He who had been anointed unto an office wherein he would command and rule over others, was now called on to serve. Lovely is it to mark his response. There was no unwillingness, no delay. He promptly complied with his father's wishes. It was also a testing of his courage. Might not Saul have learned his secret and now have designs upon his life? Might not this invitation to the palace cover a subtle plot to destroy him? Ah, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. And where God is truly feared, the fear of man disappears. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread, and a bottle of wine, and a kid, and sent them by David his son unto Saul. Verse 20. What a beautiful, typical picture is here presented to us. It was the dire need of poor Saul which moved Jesse to send forth his anointed son. So, it was a world lying in sin unto which the Father sent his Beloved. Behold David richly laden with presents for the king. Jesse sent him forth not with weapons of warfare in his hands, but with the tokens of his goodwill. So the father sent forth his son not to condemn the world, John 3.17, but on an errand of grace and mercy unto it. And David came to Saul. Yes. At his father's bidding, he freely left his home. Though the anointing oil was upon him, he went forth not to be ministered unto, but to minister. How blessedly this foreshadowed him of whom it is written, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Philippians 2, 6-8 Oh, that writer and hearer may be so filled with his spirit that not only shall we unmurmuringly but joyfully perform our Father's bidding. And David came to Saul. Admire again the wondrous working of God. David had been called to reign over Israel, but the time had not yet arrived for him to occupy the throne. An unsophisticated shepherd boy needed training. Observe then how the providence of God ordered it 
that for a season he should dwell in the royal court, thus having full opportunity to note its ways, observe its corruptions, and discover its needs, and mark it well. This was brought about without any scheming or effort, either on his own part or of that of his friends. An evil spirit from the Lord troubled the king. His courtiers were exercised and proposed a plan to him. Their plan met with Saul's approval. David was mentioned as the one who should be sent for. The king assented. Jesse raised no demurs. David was made willing. And thus, working secretly but surely, God's purpose was accomplished. It is only the eye of faith that looks above the ordinary happenings of daily life and sees the divine hand ordering and shaping them for the accomplishment of God's counsels and the good of His people. An important principle is here illustrated. When God has designed that any Christian should enter His service, His providence concurs with His grace to prepare and qualify him for it. And often it is by means of God's providences that the discerning heart perceives the divine will. God opened the door into the palace without David having to force or even so much as knock upon it. When we assume the initiative, take things into our own hands and attempt to hew a path for ourselves, We are acting in the energy of the flesh. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 37, 5-7 Obedience to these exhortations is not easy to flesh and blood, yet they must be complied with if We are not to miss God's best. The more we appropriate and act upon such divine precepts, the more clearly will the hand of God be seen when it intervenes on our behalf. The feverish activities of natural zeal only raise a cloud of dust which conceal from us the beauties of divine providence. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. Verses 21 and 22. Here, too, we may perceive and admire the secret workings of God's providence. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 It was the divine purpose and for David's good that he should spend a season at the court. Therefore did the Lord incline Saul's heart toward him. How often we lose sight of this fact. How apt we are to attribute the favor and kindness of people toward us to anything rather than to the Lord. O my hearer, 
if God has given you favor in the eyes of your congregation or your employer or your customers. Give Him the glory and the thanks for it. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the evil spirit departed from him. Verse 23 Here we see the readiness of David to perform every task which God allotted him. In this he evidenced his moral fitness for the important role he was yet to fill. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one expresses an important principle in the government of God and one which we do well to take to heart. If I am careless in fulfilling my duties as a Sunday school teacher, I must not be surprised if God never calls me to the ministry. And if I am unfaithful in teaching and disciplining my own children, I must not be surprised if God withholds His power and blessing when I seek to teach the children of others. The power of David's heart to quieten the spirit of Saul and to temporarily drive away the demon ought not to be attributed either to the skill of the player or to the charm of music. Instead, it must be ascribed alone to the Lord who was pleased to bless this means to these ends. The instrument, be it weak or strong, likely or unlikely, is utterly powerless in and of itself. Paul may plant and Apollos may water, but there will be no increase unless God gives it. In view of chapter 17, verses 55 and 56, some have concluded that what has been before us in the closing verses of chapter 16 is placed out of its chronological order. But there is no need to resort to such a supposition. Moreover, chapter 17, verse 15 plainly refutes it. How long David remained in the palace we know not, but probably for quite some time, after which he returned again unto his humbler duties in the sheepfold. Arthur Pink Continued in the April Studies Study number four Saving Faith He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16. These are the words of Christ, the risen Christ, and are the last that he uttered ere he left this earth. None more important were ever spoken to the sons of men. They call for our most diligent attention. They are of greatest possible consequence for in them are set forth the terms of eternal happiness or misery, life and death, and the conditions of both.
Faith is the principal saving grace, and unbelief the chief damning sin. The law which threatens death for every sin has already passed sentence of condemnation upon all, because all have sinned. This sentence is so preemptory that it admits of but one exception. All shall be executed if they believe not. The condition of life as made known by Christ in Mark 16.16 is double. The principal one, faith. The accessory one, baptism. Accessory, we term it because it is not absolutely necessary to life as faith is. Proof of this is found in the fact of the omission in the second half of the verse. It is not, he that is not baptized shall be damned, but he that believeth not. Faith is so indispensable that though one be baptized, yet believeth not, he shall be damned. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.